From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Both hours today are devoted to the latest on COVID-19. We'll check in on our fellow Californians in the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll find out how residents and businesses are coping with their intense restrictions. We'll also talk with a UC Irvine epidemiologist about the latest on our understanding of COVID-19, as well as some of the limitations in viral testing. And next hour, we'll talk with students whose learning has shifted to homeschooling. We'll hear how they're adapting, not just in passing the time, but actually learning the subject matter. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you're doing well in our tremendously different environment. People working from home and keeping physical distance from others. Huge changes for us. And in a moment, we'll talk about what's going on in the San Francisco Bay Area with six counties uh, where individuals have been instructed to shelter in place. We'll find out what that means and what the streets of those Bay Area counties look like this morning. But just to update you, in case you came in in the middle of the D.C. news conference with President Trump, Vice President Pence, Anthony Fauci, uh, uh, top um, uh, epidemiologist talking about COVID-19, we just wanted to mention that uh, the Trump administration is proposing a roughly $850 billion emergency economic stimulus to address the problem with the markets. And they're also considering ways of getting checks to American workers within a two-week period of time to help blunt uh, the loss of income that so many Americans are experiencing right now. We'll keep you updated on that throughout the course of the uh, day here on KPCC uh, and, of course, with all things considered this afternoon. But let's check in on our fellow Californians in the San Francisco Bay Area with us health writer from the San Francisco Chronicle, Aaron Alde. Aaron, and thank you very much for being with us. First of all, I don't know how much you've been out yourself this morning, but um, can you share with us just how uh, communities in these counties look this morning? So, hi, uh, thanks for having me, and uh, and good morning. Um, I have not been outside. I'm sort of uh, for, for, for the first part, uh, for the most part, too busy. But um, but also just you know, we're told to stay inside. So I'm I'm oh. doing the best I can. Um, I will say, you know. Last night, it was already starting to feel really quiet. I live in Berkeley, and, and I noticed it around here. Um, what I'm hearing from my colleagues who are out sort of feeling things out in the real world, um, you know, there are still people kind of lining up for doing some shopping before they hunker down. Um, takeout places were, were getting a lot of crowds of people, you know, looking for food, um, maybe trying to hit up some last favorite spots that they fear are going to shut down over the coming weeks. 
Um, so I think that there still is a fair amount of activity, but it still is mostly people sort of feeling their way through this. You've got a combined population of about 6.7 million people. The counties are San Francisco, Santa Clara, San Mateo, Marin, Contra Costa, and Alameda counties. You, you've also got uh, native counties that have not uh, issued the same uh, directive, Sonoma, Solano and Napa counties, uh, is there a thought that they might be following suit? You know, um, from what I hear, Sonoma may be, may be kind of uh, coming into the fold at some point this week. Uh, their cases have been climbing slower than the rest, but, but they're definitely, they have been concerned. Napa County doesn't actually have any cases yet, um, and so they, you know, they've been sort of removed from that a little bit. Solano County is interesting because they've had um, a few cases. In fact, Solano County had the notoriety of being the first place in the country to have, you know, an affirmed community acquired case. Um, but the the health officer there has kind of taken a different tact, and he's he's sort of more interested in approaching this from, you know, getting the message out to people, um, you know, asking sort of the community, you know, on their own to to to, to self isolate, um, and hasn't really put out the same level of mandates. Erin, what about uh, exceptions to the shelter in place? What are things that are allowed for during this period? So right now there's a fair amount of flexibility um, in terms of how essential is defined. So, you know, any place where you can buy food or pharmaceuticals are all open. So grocery stores, pharmacies, um, I mean, and that's pretty broad. So, you know, liquor stores, Target, um, places, anything that has any sort of food supplies, um, those are all open at, at for right now. Uh, restaurants um, are, are open as long as they only provide takeout or um, delivery. Uh, you know, veterinarians, auto body shops, gas stations, um, hardware stores. So people, places that people might need to access just to be able to live, you know, some sort of normal life are all staying open. The things that are shutting down are, you know, retail stores, businesses that don't provide some sort of essential, you know, living function. Um, so I think, you know, right now in the, in the places that the health officers that crafted this order, you know, they said, point blank that they crafted this very quickly. They wanted to move very fast. And so I think that they even said that, you know, we're probably going to be coming up with some answers to these questions as the days pass. Uh, If you're listing in one of the six counties in the San Francisco Bay Area, because I know we have a considerable number of listeners who listen online or via the app, uh, share with us if you've been out even for a little bit to go to the supermarket or you had to go grab something at your office, something. Let us know what you're seeing if you live in one of the six counties. We're at 86. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or you can share on our uh, AirTalk page at kpecc.org. Again, if you're a Bay Area listener to AirTalk right now, uh, share with us what what you're seeing if you've been out even briefly, uh, and also just briefly share with us how you're complying with the shelter-in-place order for the six Bay Area counties. Uh, Aaron, 
Ron, I have to say it's very strange here at KPCC. We have only essential employees to get our local programming on the air in the building. So I pull into our garage. There's maybe one or two other cars. The rest, it's just completely open. Uh, walking the, the uh, lower floor, I'm confining myself to one floor, not going to our upper newsroom, just to sort of limit my contact. Uh, so quiet. Do you know if any of your colleagues are going in to the Chronicle building in San Francisco? No, it's really weird. We were all ordered to work from home starting last Thursday. Um, so we've been out of the newsroom, you know, for a few days now. Um, every now and then a photographer or I think our editor-in-chief went back there for a, a short visit. You know, people have been stopping by to, to water plants and just, you know, they have things that they need to do there for a short time, but they'll usually post a photo or a video or something. And it's it's eerie. It's, you know, seeing this place that we all basically live in and that's usually just humming with activity to be just dead silent is, is definitely strange. Yeah, it's so strange for all of us. Go to work, and in my case, because I need to be here to be on the air, leave right after after the program, go home and uh, isolate it. And it's just, um, it's still difficult, I think, for many of us to process how dramatically different our lives are right now. Aaron, I, this is probably too early uh, to assess for you and your colleagues at the Chronicle, but I was wondering in the wake of the shelter-in-place order, how many restaurants are actually just deciding to close down because they can't be profitable for them, or perhaps they're having trouble getting employees to even shift to a takeout model. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's something that is is going to happen. I'm sure of it. Um, my colleagues at this point are working already on, uh, you know, coming up with lists of places that are planning to stay open um, and kind of trying to do that as a, as a service to readers to let them know where they can go. And I know other places like in San Francisco are putting together these lists. So. I, I get the feeling that certainly a lot of places are going to try. Um, I don't know how it's going to work out for a lot of them. You know, I have a friend who's a small business owner and runs a coffee shop, and I know that he's, you know, he's hoping to at least have some limited hours and be able to do takeout for just the neighborhood that, that depends on him. But, um, but yeah, the staffing thing, I mean, these things, these expenses add up. If you're not, you know, you're not making much money, then, you know, from what you're you're used to and you can't bring your employees in, then it's, you know, it starts to become a problem real fast. Uh, given that Silicon Valley is included in this, um, are are all the tech companies, from what you've heard, essentially ghost towns? You know, I think some of the big ones have been ghost towns for a while and that a lot of them were, like, among the first to tell people to work from home. Um, I mean, partly because they're tech, and so that's something that a lot of these places, they're, they're used to that. They're used to folks, um, you know, telecommuting um, and just having that sort of environment set up. So I think that was part of it. Um, but certainly now the rest of them are seem to be to be doing that, to be sending people home and following along. We have heard of a few bad actors, um, and I don't have specifics yet. Um, I know some of my, my colleagues are, are working on those stories, but a few businesses that are claiming to be essential and are, are insisting that people still come to work, and it's sort of like, you know, kind of iffy on whether or not they meet that criteria. Aaron, I want to thank you very much. I appreciate your being with us and sharing with us what's happening up in the San Francisco Bay Area with the order in six counties to shelter in place. Uh, I hope we can check back with you in a couple days just to get an update on, on what's happening up there. 
Yeah, for sure. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Aaron Alday, health writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, just have uh, the sentencing of former San Diego County Republican Congressman uh, Duncan Hunter has been sentenced to 11 months in prison after pleading guilty to misspending his campaign funds on personal expenses. Uh, the former Marine uh, and multi-term congressman, uh, his defense team had asked for home confinement, but he is has been sentenced to 11 months in prison following his guilty plea. Hunter resigned from Congress in January. He served six terms representing one of Southern California's last solidly Republican districts. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC. In just a moment, we're going to talk with a UC Irvine epidemiologist who'll be answering your questions about COVID-19. It's a service we're providing every day on Air Talk. Next hour, we're going to talk with students, uh, K through 12 and college students, about how their education is shifting to the home. But right now, I want to ask you from the bottom of my heart for your financial support for Air Talk on KPECC. And I say this with full knowledge that you may be in a situation where you're unsure where your next check is going to come from. Maybe you're a small business owner, you work in the gig economy, and things are feeling very insecure and very uncertain. And I understand that. I respect that. And we wish you all the best as you go through this. But if you're a listener who can financially support KPCC right now, I ask you to please do it. Our situation is this. We canceled our on-air member drive and the long interruptions that come with that so that we can bring you this in-depth coverage of the novel coronavirus. We still need to raise a million dollars total over the course of this member drive, which extends through Friday. And right now, to help incentivize that process, our very faithful Southern California Public Radio Board member Kathy Ward and George Ward Uh, They are offering a $50,000 inducement to 300 people who contribute by 5 o'clock this afternoon. So, please, we need your help right now. We have 195 people that we need to hear from by 5 o'clock. I ask you to please make your contribution right now. I'm going to close this shortly, uh, and I'm sorry for interrupting to do it, but it is absolutely essential absolutely essential to the health of AirTalk and KPCC financially that we hear from you right now. 866-893-5722 or kpecc.org. I thank you. Thank you so much. And if you've already given, I hope you know how much you mean to us. We continue our conversation on COVID-19 every day. We have a noted epidemiologist joining us to talk about the latest understanding of COVID-19 and to answer your questions. True today, UC Irvine School of Medicine, Professor of Medicine, Shruti Gohill. Dr. Gohill is Associate Medical Director for Epidemiology and Infection Prevention at the UCI School of Medicine. Dr. Gohill, thank you very much for being with us. First question that I have for you is um, just what we're learning over the past couple of days about the spread of the virus. Anything stand out to you uh, about in terms of better understanding of its behavior? 
Great question. You know, I think as the virus progresses throughout the world and in different spaces and places, you can see the different numbers. Um, it's really hard to tell anything epidemiologically until we have a standardized sense of how many people are getting tested and what the criteria are for that testing. And so since that's defined differently in every uh, sort of country and every sub uh, location, it is difficult to get a handle on how this is going. That said, um, there are some really key uh, things that we are learning that as the virus progresses, um, we are seeing the verification of some of the numbers um, that we saw in China and in South Korea. I think the South Korean experience is probably the, um, the best in terms of knowing the large denominator of people who can get sick and then how many actually get really, really sick enough to have to go to the hospital. Um, so what we are experiencing here in the U.S. seems to approximate some of the numbers that we see um, in uh, South Korea in terms of percentages um, of, of case fatalities um, and Europe. Um, I think if you look at some of the numbers coming out of Germany, um, the very low um, case fatality rates are encouraging because the um, healthcare system that we have in place here, um, more or less, uh, the expertise that's available when patients do get hospitalized um, can be approximated with some of the um, availability that we see in Europe as well. And that case fatality is about 0.4%. 0.4%. Okay, so lower than had previously been speculated. For those uh, that are healthy. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, reports of a second wave of coronavirus, uh, coronavirus cases in countries that it's, had seen the number of reported cases ebb. Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, all three have seen a, a second wave with numbers bumping up. What are your thoughts about what's likely at play there? Yeah, I think there are a number of things that can be at play. Obviously, when we put measures into place that uh, allow for social distancing and keeping your um, people in the house, and then as we see our numbers come down and people feel more comfortable going out into communities um, and awareness may be uh, less uh, present for keeping strict hand hygiene and that kind of thing, um, you might see that a resurgence of a uh, of, of viral spread. So I think that that might be one of the factors at play, um, certainly. We're talking with epidemiologist UC Irvine School of Medicine, Dr. Shruti Gohill. Uh, again, uh, our phone lines are open for you to call in with your questions for Dr. Gohill about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. We're at 866 866- 893-5722-866-893-KPECC. And I think I might have misspoken earlier when I gave our, our member drive phone number. Let me give that again for you to make your contribution right now to leverage the $50,000 in the challenge. 866-888-5722. Or you can make your contribution online or via the app kpcc.org. Back in just one minute. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPCC. And if you're someone who has not been out much lately, you've so limited your physical 
contact with other people that you're feeling a little bit stir-crazy, just want you to know you're in very good company and that we're with you in spirit uh, coming out of your... Uh, your personal assistant, your phone, your radio, however you're listening to us, your laptop. We're with you throughout the day here on 89.3 KPECC. We're talking with UC Irvine School of Medicine professor and epidemiologist, Dr. Shruti Gohill. She's answering your questions about COVID-19 at 866-893-5722. Dr. Gohill, uh, a couple days ago, I'm sure you saw this study uh, not yet peer-reviewed, but from the National Institutes of Health in scientists analyzing the behavior of um, the coronavirus and indicating that on some harder surfaces, it can live for up to three days. It also looked at the behavior of the virus in the air. Uh, your thoughts about what that study discloses and its limitations as well? Yeah, great question. It's hard to translate what studies like that when they're done in a laboratory or uh, in a setting where you are looking specifically at questions about the hardiness of a virus and translate that to the whole rest of the world in which we live. Um, we know uh, that cold viruses and flu viruses can, uh, can also survive on environmental surfaces. And you have to step back and think to yourself, well, how, how is it that I catch a cold and how is it that I catch the flu every season? Um, and it's very, very similar. So uh, when you touch a doorknob, right, a handle, uh, something that uh, somebody else who could have been sick with something uh, came and touched at the same time, uh, there are two steps. You either um, are going to touch that and then you're going to touch your nose and face um, uh, and introduce it to a mucous membrane where the virus can get access to you uh, and make you sick, or you breathe in the a virus within a three to six foot uh, orbit. This is not that different from, from what we experience with cold and flu. Um, so in that same way, cleaning the surfaces that, uh, that you may touch after somebody you know who has been sick has touched uh, is a really good idea. Washing your hands. That's why the CDC and many other professionals are recommending frequent hand washing. And that is because we know that we touch our face often. And we also know that we touch other things that others may have touched. Um, and doing both of those um, type of uh, strict hand hygiene and strict environmental control um, can really help uh, mitigate your own risk. You're listening to Wear Talk on KPECC. Larry Mantle with UC Irvine professor and Dr. Shruti Gohill. Uh, we have a question from Jennifer in the Fairfax District of L.A. She does her clothes at a laundromat and is wondering, is it safe to go to a public laundromat um, with, you know, the, the public surfaces that are there to wash her clothes? Great question. Um, to parts to that question that I think there might be concerns over. There's the environmental surfaces that we just talked about. Um, and how are you going to disrupt your risk when you come into contact with environmental surfaces? Simple, wash your hands. Um, the second part that I hear in that question is the idea that other people's clothes could have been 
in the laundry and you put your clothes in and you're sort of concerned that your clothes can get contaminated by somebody else's who could have been sick. Um, what's great news is that most viruses, uh, I have not heard of a virus, let's say, um, that can survive the high heat of, um, of the drying cycle and, so, and the, what we put uh, through the washing machine with soap. So those two steps are absolutely critical. Everything that we know uh, is, says that this is easily killed um, with simple laundry and washing your hands to do a great job of killing the virus, too. All right, Jennifer, sounds like you can get your clothes clean. Thank you for that. Appreciate your call. Marcus in downtown Los Angeles, you're on Air Talk. So my question for Dr. Gohill is, I am a healthcare provider, um, we are, I work for Molecular Diagnostic Lab here in Los Angeles, and we're ramping up testing for the COVID-19, bringing that on. Um, and we hope to ramp up shortly. However, as we know that testing has been very limited here in the U.S., and there's obviously going to be cases that are asymptomatic that we don't know, based upon the um, infection rate of more more informed nations such as South Korea or even based on a Chinese model, do we have a better estimate of the number of people who are truly infected? Are we able to make that kind of extrapolated um, guess or is it just too, too far to say? All right, Marcus, appreciate it. Great question. It is really too early, I would say, in the United States to understand uh, our numbers well enough. I do think that South Korea's experience helps us extrapolate a whole lot. Um, even in Europe, I think that the testing uh, strategy and ramp up is uh, still on its way to be ramped up like it is in the U.S. Um, in other words, demand is uh, out. Uh, out, uh, surpassing the supply of testing. So until we are at steady state on that, it's hard to get the numbers. I hope I've answered your question. Uh, we have Jeffrey who asks on our AirTalk page, kpcc.org, in Taiwan, everyone is wearing masks. In fact, the China, Taiwanese government is heading the production of 6 million masks a day, produced at least 124 coronavirus response action items. Despite its proximity to China and a population density six times that of the U.S., Taiwan only has around 70 positive cases among a population of just over 23 million and is not on lockdown like the U.S. because they are wearing masks and following the government's updates. Is it too late to implement some of Taiwan's containment strategies here in the U.S.? First of all, uh, Dr. Gohill, is, is Jeffrey, um, to your knowledge, accurately characterizing what Taiwan's doing? I think it is hard to say how Taiwan has mitigated its numbers. We have to also remember that the way that Taiwan approached things was to minimize who was coming into the country. It is away from mainland China. Um, and it, when you do that and, and limit travel immediately and early, and you put in these um, uh, social distancing strategies right away, I'm not sure how much of it has to do with a face mask versus all of these other strategies. So hard to extrapolate. Yeah. And, and can you comment on face masks? Because um, I know there are people who believe that, that that helps to keep them safe. Do we have evidence that that's accurate or is, is more of it that we pick it up from surfaces than airborne? 
it's a melange of things. It's a really important question, so I'm glad you asked. Um, it makes common sense. If, on the one hand, if you think about a barrier between your face and other people, and um, that it should lessen your risk, right? It, the thing is, is that it's not really clear that this helps people above and beyond the usual social distancing strategies in, in highly attentive processes to hand hygiene. So the two steps, breathing it in, second step, taking something that might be on your hand or a contaminated um, area, then introducing it to your mixed membranes. So face masks only help on the one um, uh, on the on on the breathing breathing it in part, but if you're doing social distancing, then you've mitigated that risk right away. Um, and you have to kind of step back and think. In China, people were using face masks extensively all over China. We got hundreds, uh, thousands, and thousands of cases, despite the use of face masks. So um, you know the. It's not clear. The jury is out that it really makes that much of a difference if you don't do all of the right things, which are really about social distancing strategies. Now, if you are sick, you yourself are sick, you are uh, sneezing, you got a runny nose, and you put a face mask, um, you are controlling your own source. That makes sense. If you are not sick, what I think could happen with a face mask is it gives you a false sense of security so that you're not doing all the other things that you ought to be doing to mitigate your risk, which is in making sure that you're staying away from people and washing your hands. Uh, James asks on our AirTalk Facebook page, if there's anything that should be done to try and sanitize one's pets... Yeah, there have been stories out there um, talking about pet-mediated uh, transmission. Um, and, I, you know, obviously nobody's really studied this in any uh, rigorous way to know whether or not that's a good thing to do. And uh, it is true that we that if you have a pet and they happen to come into direct contact with secretions from somebody who is sick, just like you, just like humans, and then they come to you and they transfer it, sure, that, that can happen. Um, but decontaminating your pet uh, does not seem like a strategy that would be a high-yield strategy. Uh, uh, K- uh, Kamani, uh, Kamanika in Altadena wonders if elective surgeries should be delayed uh, until after COVID-19 abates. Great question. Hospitals are are have been preparing uh, for pandemics like this for years. We have contingency plans in place, and then when coronavirus comes into play, of course, we go into a mode of thinking about all innumerable things in the hospital. And of course, the operating room is one of them. Um, There are two schools of thought. If you haven't a truly elective surgery, like you wanted to remove something that was bugging you on your skin, um, not something that really matters for your health, uh, then should you delay it? Sure. But elective can have a real big spectrum. Elective could also mean that you have a serious problem with one of your blood vessels. And while you don't need it immediately, like today, like an emergency, you should get it done within a week or two. Should you delay a surgery like that? Absolutely not. Um, We have contingency plans uh, in place, and we have ways to protect not just our um, uh, healthcare workers, but our patients as well uh, in the hospital. So um, I I would not delay a 
necessary surgery, even though elective sounds elective, sometimes that could be a gallbladder surgery that um, that your doctor has recommended you to get done sooner rather than later. Uh, I wouldn't worry about going in for a procedure like that. Because one doesn't know, right, how long this could all last and if it's something that um, isn't emergency surgery but still important to your health, um, if you delay now, I guess there could be cases, if, then, then it could be months, right, before maybe you'd get access to an OR. That is absolutely right. And the other piece of that is that we are relatively early in our uh, ramp up of cases. Um, it is thought because we don't have the testing there. We don't really know the extent. But so one could make the argument that right now might be a good time to get your surgery um, because things could be worse for all you know in a week or two or a couple of months. Um, so there's two schools of thought. Uh, we have Roy, uh, who asks on our AirTalk page, um, we're all his family, his, his wife, he and his son are staying at home. Should we be frequently sanitizing doorknobs, counters, light switches? Um, is, is that something that they need to do throughout the course of the day? Great question. If you are sick, some of these strategies really should be focused on who's sick and who's not. Who do you avoid and who do you not avoid? You really, it's, it's somebody who is sick in the house. You know it. They have secretions and they're touching doorknobs. They're uh, all over the kitchen. That's a, a, a surface that you need to be cleaning uh, periodically to make sure that other people don't pick it up. If you are all in the house, you're all healthy. Nobody is sick as far as you know. Uh, cleaning and sanitizing your spaces is not necessary you know, with high frequency. If you introduce somebody into the house, you uh, realize that they are sick or could be sick. Maybe you want to obviously clean through the surfaces that they've been in contact with. Uh, Ed in Studio City says, why is it safe to eat takeout food if people preparing it and packing it aren't wearing gloves or face shields? Great question. Um, you know, we then have to step back to answer that question properly about what is it that we're trying to achieve as a society, as a community, when we um, close down restaurants, when we close down bars. We are trying to minimize the congregation of many people, some of whom could be sick. We are trying to, we as a, when I say we as a public health and a, a medical community, uh, we're trying to mitigate the potential sharing of surfaces, of sharing of plates or uh, handing off um, things to each other. When you'd order takeout, um, what we, first of all, the food industry has standards on how you're supposed to manage food. They wear gloves when they're preparing it. They wear masks, uh, uh, excuse me, hair ties and other things when they're preparing food. Um, and that varies, of course, restaurant to restaurant. So then they uh, prepare the food, they, sent, they come over and presumably, you know, one person who is not sick handing you food is not a problem. And again, your best barrier is when you uh, have contact with anybody, you wash your hands and you know, wash your hands before you eat. Then you've mitigated that risk right there. We're talking with epidemiologist Dr. Shruti Gohill, who's professor of medicine 
at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. She's Associate Medical Director for Epidemiology and Infection Prevention. She's generously spending most of this hour answering your questions about COVID-19 throughout uh, the course of this emergency period. Each day, we've been uh, very privileged to have uh, a local epidemiologist answer these questions. We're at 866-893-KPECC. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Seconds on Air Talk. Our guidance yesterday urges Americans to take action for 15 days to help stem the outbreak. So it's a 15 day period. I guess uh, now we'd say it's a 14 day period. It's 15 days from yesterday, and we're asking everyone to work at home if possible, postpone unnecessary travel, and limit social gatherings to no more than 10 people. By making shared sacrifices and temporary changes, we can protect the health of our people and we can protect our economy because I think our economy will come back very rapidly. Uh, President Trump at the news briefing this morning, along with Vice President uh, Pence, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health, also part of that news conference. The president also said the White House looking at potentially mobilizing the Army Corps of Engineers to build field clinics and hospitals. I'm going to work with uh, a number of the governors. Governor Newsom has been very generous in his in his words, and I'm being generous to him, too, because we're all working together very well. And, and uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of very positive things have taken place. Uh, we're talking to California about different sites, but we can, we can have a lot of units up fairly quickly if we think we need them. Uh, and just to update you on the latest California statistics, uh, the state says there are 472 confirmed cases of COVID-19. There have been 11 deaths, including one non-California resident. Uh, and the uh, age range of those who have confirmed positive, um, 300 of the cases are in the 18 to 64 age range, 160 cases are 65 and over, seven cases are of of minors, those under the age of 18, five cases for some reason are unknown. I guess they weren't able to get the age of the person who took the test. Uh, so just to give you a sense of what's happening here in California, we're joined by epidemiologist from uh, UC uh, Irvine, uh, Dr. Gohill, joining us, Rudy Gohill with us. Dr. Gohill, uh, your, your thoughts about um, the potential for field hospitals being opened. What do you think is the likelihood of the need for that kind of bed capacity? By all projections, if you just take the numbers and if you think that the virus is going to march forward in the way that it has in other places, um, then then those numbers would get big enough to um, to require extra spaces to place patients. Um, the likelihood of that really, it's in the next couple of weeks, we hope that based on how things go uh, in the United States, that we will know more. Uh, but it's really hard to predict the likelihood of needing something like that. You'll notice that in um, China, they had built... Um, hospitals. And uh, I don't know that they really needed them at the end of the day uh, after they put their um, their uh, strategies into place. 
uh, as cases began to decline. But that's always a good thing to hope for. It's always really important to be planning as well. The president talking about the next 14 days now, uh, people uh, not going out unless essential. We have a number of listeners like Nicholas in West L.A. wondering if they should go for their dental appointment, saying that in some cases the practices are open. My understanding, though, was the California Dental Association was recommending only emergency uh, dental procedures be done. But uh, Dr. Gohill, do you have any information on that? I don't have any new information on that. But again, I think that some of the principles apply. Uh, It's true that dental work sometimes can be put off and, and it's not necessarily essential. So emergency does make sense. But then we start to ask the question, you know, how long can this be sustainable? and for which uh, types of cases. And I think for the time being, that, that that recommendation seems quite reasonable. It also helps our dental offices and other people not to be um, coming in and min- mitigating spread from that standpoint. So that, I think, is the underpinning of, of that approach. Um, but uh, if you have something that you need to get done and your dentist is open um, and able to work, uh, then I would I would think that they would be able to have strategies in place like cleaning their own surfaces. They'll be wearing masks. You'll be washing your hands. They'll be washing their hands. Um, that safely you can do procedures like that. You just have to have the strategies in place to do it. We do it in hospitals and healthcare all the time. I was going to say probably about as sterile an environment as you'd be entering as your right. dentist's office these these days. Um, let's see. Um, we also have, uh, this is an excellent question. Un tweets at AirTalk. Uh, how do you recommend someone with symptoms but untested successfully isolate from family within the same house. What kind of cleaning or sanitizing needs to be done to keep other family members safe? And I would tag on to Un's question, should the person who is exhibiting symptoms stay in just one room of the house that other family members don't enter? What a great question. It is important. So this stands for any viral illness or uh, illness you think is communicable to somebody else at home and you have a loved one that you don't want to pass this on to. So what do you do? You separate yourselves from others as much as possible. You keep a three to six foot distance from other people as much as possible. Now, if you are sick, as I was saying before, now you're sick and you are a source you think uh, is a respiratory illness. Yes. Now that person should be wearing a face mask when you're in the same room as another person. That would be a reasonable strategy. And if you don't have a face mask, just any mouth covering and nose covering should be sufficient. And if you're unable to wear a face mask because it's uncomfortable and you have respiratory symptoms, your housemates can choose to protect themselves as well um, uh, with a with a mask. Um, you, you can stay in a different room from others in your home if that is an option. If you're if available, use a separate bathroom. Don't share household items like utensils, drinking glasses, towels, bedding. Towels and bedding, of course, we don't think that the virus can survive very long. But uh, of course, if you have a wet secretion on a towel and another person uses that same towel, well, obviously you might transfer, right? Um, And then wash your hands, the best, wash your hands right away. 
uh, with soap after you use anything that somebody else may have touched. Um, and then you cover your cough and your sneeze with a tissue if you're in proximity with other people. Do you have to be completely locked down um, and n- not see anybody? Um, that's not necessarily the case if you can actually avidly, strictly follow these types of um, strategies. All right. And then finally, oh, go I'm ahead. sorry, I'm I sorry, forgot no. to mention that I'm sorry, I forgot to mention a really important key point. This is where those disinfectant wipes that your other listener was talking about come into play. Clean, 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 clean anything that you touch that others may touch. All right. Uh, Rob writes on our AirTalk page, I work in a substance abuse treatment center. We've set up basins with a proper mix of chlorine water, cloth towel. Every hour or so we glove up, wipe down doorknobs, chairs, sink handles, and flat surfaces. Chlorine water mixture, great way to quickly neutralize most pathogens. Just be sure to wear covering your old clothes in case you get the bleach on them. That's Rob uh, sharing some information. Uh, You have anything else to add to that, uh, Dr. Gohill, about, uh, you know, particularly since uh, the wipes and the uh, antibacterial solution are in short supply? Yeah, um, it is true that that listener is absolutely right that chlorine should work just fine. And uh, I I think that's all I I would add. We're going to let you go. Thank you for spending all this time with us this hour. I can't imagine how busy you are, Dr. Gohill. We really appreciate your, your generosity with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Shruti Gohill, Professor of Medicine and Associate Medical Director for Epidemiology and Infection Prevention at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. And again, in case you were not able to get through with your question, we obviously have many more questions uh, than than we have uh, the time each day. Please save it. We'll be back with another epidemiologist or perhaps even Dr. Gohill tomorrow uh, to answer your questions. Back in one minute on Air Talk. I just want to underscore the kind words of our listener member. Uh, We suspended our member drive on uh, AirTalk and throughout our KPCC schedule so that we can bring you the in-depth coverage of COVID-19. But we still have to raise a million dollars in total by Friday to assure that we can balance the budget here at KPCC. And if you're someone who's going through tough financial times because of COVID-19, we completely understand. And all I can say is all of us are with you and and our thoughts and concerns are with you during this time. But if you can contribute right now, when we have a $50,000 challenge from our board member, Kathy Ward and George Ward, please do so right now. We have had a tremendous outpouring of support just in the past few minutes since I last brought this up. Nearly 50 AirTalk listeners have given. This is extraordinary, particularly since we're taking such little time to do this. Please, please, with the $50,000 challenge, if you can make your contribution, join with these other tremendously generous and kind listeners in supporting what we do. We're at 866 888 5722. That's 866-888-5722. Or you can click and join at kpcc.org. 
With us to talk about COVID-19 anxiety versus alarmism is Professor of Public Health and Director of the Public Health Program at Hunter College in New York City, uh, Philip Alcabas. Uh, He's joined us in the past to talk about uh, whether our fears are justified. Uh, His book of a few years ago is titled Dread, How Fear and Fantasy Have Fueled Epidemics from the Black Death to the avian flu. Uh, Philip Alcabas, good to have you with us again on AirTalk. Uh, first of all, is, is there any kind of a comparison we can make here historically to what we're going through with COVID-19? Well, there's, prob- <clears throat> Excuse me. there's probably no comparison to anything in our lifetimes. Uh, that there have surely been outbreaks that have been even deadlier than this, but a long time ago. So in that sense, um, it's, for us, it's unprecedented. So uh, people, of course, are highly anxious about this. One of the issues seems to me that we still don't really have a handle on how many people have the virus because of the delay in getting the testing infrastructure up and fully operational. Do you anticipate once everyone who is an obvious candidate to get tested can get tested and can get timely test results, that that will be the biggest um, sort of salve for, uh, you know, for people's anxieties? I don't. Um, I, wish, I wish I could say yes, but I cannot say yes. Um, it's, it, it's in the nature of epidemic anxieties, as uh, I'll use the word you did, to be, be driven by a conversation that's fueled by information coming from everywhere, not just data on tests and test results. We like to think of ourselves as rational. I know I do, but that's not how epidemic anxieties work. And in this day and age, when information is everywhere, we, we, all of us, or most of us, live in a sea of information that's coming from mainstream media and social media and our friends. Uh, it's really, it would be uh, unusual if people could simply, were, were simply to take reassurance from test results. I think that where we are in the public conversation about COVID-19 is going to have a life of its own and will take longer to dissipate than the, than the test results show, the test results on the virus itself uh, reveal. So you're someone who's written about alarmism, and it, it sounds like what you're saying is um, people do have good reason to be deeply concerned with what we're experiencing. People have good reason to be concerned and to take appropriate measures. The, a, a problem that Americans are facing now is that the advice about what those measures are and realistic information for those at least who are willing to pay attention to that has, has been so spotty, irregular, contradictory that people have to be forgiven for not knowing what they should be doing themselves. 
We're talking with public health authority uh, Philip Alcabas of Hunter College in New York City. He directs the public health program that's part of the City University of New York system. He's author of the book uh, from about a decade ago, Dread, How Fear and Fantasy Have Fueled Epidemics from the Black Death to the avian flu. Um, there's been a lot of, of you know, looking back to um, the early part of the 20th century and the Spanish flu. My great-grandmother actually got sick with that, and, and her health never really fully recovered afterwards. I, I remember her being rather sickly, you know, when I was a kid. And um, what are some of the things that we learned from that epidemic? Ooh, that's a very interesting question. Did we learn anything from that from that epidemic? It, it until fairly recently, or let me say this: for 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 decades after the nineteen eighteen to nineteen nineteen flu, so called Spanish flu, there was very little discussion of it. Oh, Americans started to think about that epidemic only in the nineteen seventies or eighties, long after it was over. It was the worst acute, that is, we um, took place in a space of about 15 months, um, outbreak in American history. Killed, nobody knows how many Americans exactly, but the estimates are about 600 to 700,000 Americans in the course of a year or so. A much smaller country. In a much smaller country, in a, in a country whose population was then only 100 and something million. I forget exactly. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that was a very, very big deal. And the first response was to not talk about it for a generation or so. Um, I'm sure your great-grandmother had something to say, but it wasn't part of the public conversation. And I don't exactly... It was actually her son. She didn't talk about it. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's so that's really interesting, right? Like, it, somehow it was... There was something either shameful or, forget- or forgettable um, that people wanted to bury, to put behind them. And that the importance of that outbreak was resuscitated in really the 1980s. All right. Hey, I thank you so much, Professor Philip Alcabas, uh, joining us, Hunter College, New York City. He directs the public health program at Hunter. We have much more to come on COVID-19 in the second hour of Air Talk here on 89.3 KPCC. I'll tell you about it in a moment. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us as we continue to update you on COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. And that's all we're discussing today. Later this hour, we're going to be talking with students who are home, whether college students or elementary, middle school, high school. We want to hear how you're adapting to studying at home. What are the things that you're working on with your parents uh, to try and make it a positive experience uh, being away from school. And in many cases, that means being away from your friends. So a little bit later this hour, we'll be taking your call uh, on that. So uh, be thinking about um, the kinds of things you'd like to share with us about learning at home. Joining us right now is the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Mayor Garcetti, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. 
Um, first of all, I want to ask you about um, the Bay Area, where six counties are sheltering in place, taking quite stringent methods to try and stem the spread of COVID-19. Is that something that is being considered in Los Angeles County? Uh, good morning, Larry, and thank you so much, by the way, for being such a, a calm and steady voice. Um, we all need to breathe and we all need to realize we are going to get through this together. But uh, first of all, looking at the Bay Area, we're, we're in some cases, Santa Clara County had an infection rate, I think, uh, last couple of days, about 10 times higher than ours. Um, so we've been implementing a lot of things earlier, at an earlier point than we saw in Italy and other places. Um, and that sheltering in place idea, by the way, I hate the phrase because it sounds like a school shooting. I think there's so many exceptions up there um, for critical infrastructure, builders, um, accountants that are, you know, on timelines. Um, if you look at the list of exemptions, they actually have dozens of them. But I think their message is loud and clear that they're at a point where um, they are worried about their hospital beds being overwhelmed, not just for COVID-19 folks, but other people who need to get to a hospital. And so we need to enforce as much discretion, anybody who can stay at home or work at home up there, it's the right decision. We're not there yet in Los Angeles, but I've gone further than a lot of national cities quicker because I don't think, um, you know, we want to look back and say we didn't do things at the right moment. And when it feels wrong, my mantra has been that's probably the right time to do it. By the time it feels right, it's probably too late. So we will you know, be looking at that day to day. But I want to reassure people, too, there's so many texts, there's so many robocalls that are going out from mysterious sources, there's so many conspiracies that there's a secret government plan either at the national level or local level for martial law or to have us all shut down. We're going to continue being as transparent as possible every step of the way, saying this is something that could happen some days in the future here, depending on what the numbers are of this next week. Uh, but it isn't imminent in Los Angeles, though I support it up north. All right. Uh, Mayor Garcetti, let's talk a bit about uh, city employees and our decisions being made about who's able to work from home, who works for the city versus those deemed essential who need to either you know, come into an office or uh, be out doing trash collection or, or other services that need to be provided. Well, let me start by thanking our city employees who are, are incredible heroes and public servants. Um, we saw that during the fires last year with firefighters. Um, so many people are asking, how can I help? Um, I'm going to have fewer hours. I'm a librarian. The libraries are closed. Where can I chip in, help out? We're seeing that with teachers and classified employees in the school district. And of course, a lot of private sector employees from grocery clerks to truck drivers to, of course, our healthcare workers who are doing an amazing job. But in the city, this isn't our first rodeo with a disaster. We have uh, ongoing plans for every single department of who's critical and who's not. Um, I want to reassure people, this city government will never shut down. We're going to continue having public safety and health met, trash picked up, our firefighters, police officers. But we are moving today towards a model, and we'll have more guidance on this, to basically anybody who's not a critical worker who can telecommute, we're going to ask them to. Um, if they can't, we'll have the distancing and spacing out. We have some critical functions of the economy still going. For instance, we want to keep our construction going where people are not working side by side but can take a paycheck home and they need to get the permits and other things from our city. So we're going really uh, each one of these departments through Department of Water and Power. 
where we're not going to cut off your water and power. We want to make sure that's working and there's critical employees. The airport, obviously, a critical place for us. The port, where we're at 85% strength. So we're seeing, still seeing ships come in and deliver that food we need and the medical supplies we'll depend on. Um, so we will have probably in the next 48 hours um, some direction specifically for our employees to a greater chunk of them to go, not just if they're sick, but to look at telecommuting for um, you know the next few weeks. LA Mayor Eric Garcetti with us. Uh, Mayor, just about every day you've had additional restrictions to talk about, although it was the opposite way with parking last night, talking about uh, enforcement being suspended uh, for, for uh, a short period of time here. But what are some of the things um, that you've not landed on as being necessary quite yet, but that are under consideration at this point? And thanks for mentioning the the parking. We're trying to do everything we can to relieve the stress and the economic burden of this moment. Um, More people at home means there's more cars in the neighborhood. So we're still going to do street sweeping. If you can move your car, please do. But you won't get a ticket if you don't. Um, We need to do that for public health. Um, You know, the fines won't go up. We're really pushing that out. There's no evictions of people. I put an eviction moratorium through for the city um, for folks that are renters. Um, So anything we can do to help people. But, you know, I think that it will not be one sudden one day where everybody is indoors. If we get to more extreme measures, they'll come steps at a time. We'll look at, as we are doing with our city employees, who more can telecommute uh, mandates potentially for our seniors, um, as long as we can make sure we know where they are and we're taking care of them. But for all of us right now, I think the most important thing to recognize is this isn't just for government to mandate. 90% of this, if not more, is in our own behavior. And there's still a lot of people who think, you know, because statistically it's true, most people won't die from this, many people won't get it, and they say, I'm young, I'm strong, you know, I don't interact with that many people, but all it takes is one interaction. You shake one hand, it's every hand that hand shakes after that. It's your parents and your grandparents, it's your neighbors, it's your coworkers, it's your friends fighting cancer or who are immunocompromised. So we're the first responders. It's not just firefighters, but each one of us. And I would just really impress upon people that the most extreme measures are the ones you can make on your for yourself right now of just keeping that social distance, which is, you know, two thirds of this fight to stop the spread and to bring down that number, flatten the curve so that our hospitals aren't overwhelmed and that we get through this together. We're talking with L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. Do you have time I can ask you another question or do you need to run? Go ahead. I'm good. Okay, thanks. Um, You mentioned the suspension of evictions for people whose income has just stopped cold. And, you know, we're all of us are very concerned about people that are in that circumstance, as well as business owners who um, their business has dried up, restaurants, bars, theaters. There are so many vulnerable different sectors of the economy right now and the people that work in those businesses or own those businesses. Um, we hear about the federal government talking about their hope that within a couple of weeks, Americans will get checks to help tide them over. But is there anything that the city or the city with the county can do to help these different sectors that are particularly vulnerable? Absolutely. And um, first of all, for the average worker, we want to make sure whether it's the evictions, no water and power or gas being cut off, um, you know, small things like the parking uh, fines that people get, that means dollars in people's pockets. And that means people staying 
uh, stable and being able to get through this. We're also looking at direct assistance, and we hope to roll out later this week some direct assistance to small businesses, though we have pennies on the federal dollar. So you're right. This really is something we need national leadership on direct aid to small businesses, apparel tax cut, um, and, you know, obviously paid sick leave and family leave to care for folks. Um, that's going to be absolutely critical. And we're working with the uh, federal government on our airlines. We have so many people who work for our airlines and our travel industry. Um, we're working with folks like the County Federation of Labor to give food to our hotel workers who have been really hard hit. And we're looking at our hotels and motels um, to put folks that are unhoused who are homeless in Los Angeles County with our governor. Uh, we need those rooms filled. That will help the jobs continue and help us with homelessness at the same time we control this crisis. So I'm really pleased to see the governor stepping up to help us there as well. Real briefly, you have any sense how many uh, homeless individuals are going to be able to move into hotels and motels and, and be able to protect themselves from the virus? Luckily, this is a program that we had long before the virus started. I just think we'll get a lot more motel and hotel owners who will say yes. So where we've had, you know, in the low hundreds, we could get as many as, you know, a couple thousand or more rooms. Um, so we're going to get that number up as high as we can. We have plans, if necessary, to be able to go into some of our recreation centers as well and working with folks to be able to bring people who are uh, homeless in there. And, of course, it doesn't matter if you're homeless or you're not. It doesn't matter if you're an immigrant or you're not. When it comes to severe symptoms, the medical care of going to a hospital is your right. And so we want to, We are going on the streets right now letting people know that and seeing who, who may be in those conditions because many people who are unhoused have the underlying conditions that make them most vulnerable to death, just like seniors. And so we've stopped all the other kind of outreach work we do, and we're just doing that with everybody on the streets. Put 310 hand sanitizing stations out there in our encampment areas. We'll continue doing the street, street sweeping to keep the, the areas around those encampments clean for folks that are there and looking at what we can do to make sure we ramp up um, the staffing of our shelters because we don't want those workers to call in sick and the shelters have to shut down. Mayor Garcetti, thank you very much for updating us on the city of Los Angeles's efforts uh, to combat the spread of COVID-19. We appreciate it very much. Larry, as always, for your great work, too. Thank you so much. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti with us on Air Talk. It's 89.3 KPCC. Just wanted to update you that even as we have suspended our lengthy fundraising breaks during uh, our typical spring member drive on KPCC, that your financial support is absolutely essential. We have a $50,000 challenge through 5 o'clock today from our board member, Kathy Ward and George Ward. We're looking to hear from 300 KPCC listeners by 5 o'clock today. Your financial support is is absolutely vital if you can afford to do it. And I know we've been talking about the economic hardship of Angelinos. We completely understand and we are with you. I'm really talking to you if you're an AirTalk listener who can support KPCC financially right now. We still need to hear from 150 listeners by 5 o'clock today. We're only half of the way to achieving the $50,000 challenge. So please, if you can do so, Ask for your help right now at 866-888-5722-866-888-5722, where you can click and join at kpcc.org. 
Well, fortunately, the Dow is up today, but it's been such a wild roller coaster ride. Who knows what it's going to be over the next two, three days, let alone a week or two from now. The Dow's up just a bit over 900 points right now. But the question is, for those who are invested in the market, about half of Americans, typically through a 401k, what sorts of approach should people take, depending on how close they might be to retirement, whether they are already retired, or those who might have years to go before they exit the workforce? Joining us to uh, offer her expertise is Delia Fernandez, a fee-only certified financial planner and investment advisor who's based in Los Alamitos. Delia, it's great to have you with us again on AirTalk. Are, are you being inundated with client calls? inundated, but I've certainly been touching base with clients and they've been calling me. All right. And um, I assume your advice to them is different depending on where they are in in their work lifespan. Um, For those individuals who are retired and are living largely off investment uh, money through a 401k or something uh, similar, what is your advice to them? I like to make sure that they all have the money that they expect to need in the next year or so in something very stable. So a lot of 401ks are going to have a stable value fund or they're going to have um, like a savings account where you put in the money and it's secure and you get a little interest. That's where I want those withdrawals to be. So if you know that you need 1000 a month to come out of your accounts every, every month, Let's be sure to have 12000 or maybe even two years' worth, 24000 in one of those stable value funds. All right. Also joining us, a fee-only fiduciary financial planner based in Encino, Matthew uh, Magrofsky. Uh, thank you very much, Matthew, for uh, joining us. What about for your clients who are, you know, sort of around the midpoint, let's say, of their anticipated working career, but are freaking out over what they're seeing in the decline uh, 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 of the value of stocks they have? What are you telling them? Sure. Very good to be with you. It's, um, you know, it's a matter of uh, poise and perspective at this point. You know, everybody's got that wrenching feeling in their stomach. And it's uh, a lot of times just getting on the phone with clients and hearing our calm voice or Delia's will make a big difference uh, that this too shall pass. And those that have timeline is everything. So if you have, um, you know, a significant timeline, if you're not retiring in the next 12, 24, 36 months, um, this is where we're encouraging people that are at work, that are planning to work. Uh, this is the time where you want to up that percentage. And in the face of fear and uncertainty, you've got to be calm and collected because um, we're in a historic time. And this is, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history on this one. When we look three, five years out, who knows, maybe even nine months out. Um, so poise and, and uh, perspective is, is a must. We're talking with Delia Fernandez and Matthew Morofsky, uh, both of them fee-only financial planners here in Southern California. If you have questions for them about what's going on with the stock market and how to deal with this relative uh, to your retirement plans or your retirement reality, we're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866 866- We'll continue our conversation in just one minute.
I see A saying that face-to-face to me, and how could you say no? I, um, a, I appreciate that so much. Um, appreciate my colleagues here. And, you know, it's during times like this when um, all of us are trying to pull together and serve you to the best of our ability um, that you recognize fortunate you are to work with the true professionals, um, certainly that I am here at KPCC. Right now, we're taking your calls. If you have questions about your retirement accounts in the wake of yesterday's historic stock market drop, uh, today the good news is the market's up a little over 900 points as I speak, um, up just about 4.5% of its value. So if you have questions about how to respond to what can be, um, in some cases, panic-inducing stock market results, we're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Delia Fernandez, for your clients who are looking at retiring within the next year, um, I would think that for those people particularly, there's a great deal of concern. Would your advice be to them to still sit tight? Well, we have to take a look at where they're allocated and how they're allocated and where the money is coming for them to live in retirement. You know, some people have Social Security and savings, and some people are blessed with pensions. Sometimes they don't need to tap a lot of their investment accounts. But for the majority of people, we don't get pensions. So we have to reduce our expenses, but we also have to think about reducing stocks as we enter into retirement. We either reduce stocks down to a very modest level, or we put aside withdrawal money, savings money, that we're going to need for the next two or three years as a cushion. One of those two things can help lessen the blow of a down market like this. We call it sequence of returns risk, and we want to guard against that, either with a lot of cash on hand or with a lower allocation to stocks. Matthew Morofsky, what has been the history uh, when we have seen um, one of these historic dips in the market? Um, You know, what you know obviously the great depression being the worst example but um is there any way of getting a sense how long this downturn is likely to last you know it's it's really hard to look at historicals on this because um what what people and investors need to uh, realize is that we're not having a a financial crisis uh like we had in in 2008 and we're we're in, you know even as i talk to you know people in their 80s and 90s we've never lived through anything like this where you're seeing cities shut down and travel i mean this is this is all new territory so historically you can't look back at an 08 you can't look back at a 1987 even though there's there's a lot of comparisons number wise um and and i'd say the best place to look is is looking places like what's happening in china now where people are going back to work and look at places like uh south korea and and realizing that this is a is a virus as bad as it is um that you have to put that you know we're we're in all new territory as far so this is brand new territory it's not a finance banks are well capitalized um they were before this and and the other thing i, I was just having a conversation with a colleague is we were due for a 20 percent correction you know we're down about 30 uh, percent depending on which index give or take um, so we were due for every about, if you look at the numbers, every about 10 years or so or, or less, 
there there should be about a natural 20% correction. And so we're we're 10 over that, and who knows if this gets worse or better before. But um, it's just a matter of of staying calm and realizing that, uh, you know, steady sailors are made during rough seas. Kate in Toluca Lake, you're on air talk with certified fee-only financial planners Matthew Morofsky and Delia Fernandez. Um, I'm, my question is this. My husband and I are senior citizens. We have savings accounts that we were putting away for, you know, retirement. And what we wonder is, with the, the crisis going on, uh, should we take our savings out of the bank so we have cash on hand so we're not left high and dry if, if it all goes away? Delia Fernandez? Oh, I'm certain that those savings accounts are safe if they're backed by SIPC, I'm sorry, if they're backed by FDIC insurance through the banks or the National Credit Union Association. Now, it's always good to have cash on hand for emergencies. And, you know, in California, we always think about earthquakes. Yeah. Wouldn't doubt the strength of our banks and savings accounts. All right. I appreciate it, Kate. Thank you very much. 866-893-KPECC, or you can ask your question on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org, where Curtis Ann uh, asks, we were told gold is a safe investment in a down market, yet gold has performed as poorly as stocks and bonds. What happened? Is that advice no longer valid? Uh, Curtis Ann asks, uh, Matthew? Well, you have to look at gold um, over the long term. Gold, if, if you time it right, you can you can make good money on gold. But it's one of the lower performing assets if you look at a historical view compared to stocks and other vehicles. And and I, I'd say I was even talking to my partner Alan Goodstein, and it's actually we we look at it as a good good signal that gold is down. Um, it, as if you know, if gold people rush into gold when they're when there's panic in the markets, but. We actually view it as a, as a positive thing for the capital markets that gold is, is down. Now, you can use it as a hedge um, you know, against the markets, but I'd say uh, that the timing on that would have been about roughly, give or take, two and a half, three weeks ago when we were sitting at 29,000, uh, right? But even then, you can't be assured that you know, gold has not performed as well. So the timing on gold is very, very tough. Um, and and usually used as a hedge against against things like this. But it's as you said, we're in new territory, so it's uh, it's not performing the way a lot of people uh, expect have expected it to. Ed in Lake Balboa in the San Fernando Valley, your question, please. Hi, uh, good uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, hosting this. This is a great opportunity for us to hear about what's going on in the market, and it gives us a, a great perspective. So what we can do. My question was around, um, my wife and I uh, have a 401k through our employers. Uh, we've been thinking about pulling out eventually to, to borrow from our 401ks to purchase our first home. Um, given that in the last, we've seen the right now the performance is 20% dropped on, on collectively on both of our portfolios. Wanted to see if, if it would be a good idea to pull out now while we can, because we don't know the uncertainty of what could happen tomorrow, or should we hold off and write it off? Ed, I appreciate the question. Uh, Delia Fernandez, what do you think? Boy, it's always tough to uh, time the market. You got to be right twice. You know, you got to know when to sell and when to buy back in. Um, if you really needed to get a home, if you couldn't wait, I guess you have to take the hit. But I would prefer that you wait. You know, um, but this is a matter of your own personal timing. See if there are some financial opportunities out there to finance more of the loan and less of of the down payment so that you don't have to take that hit on your 401k. But, 
you've pointed out a, uh, an important thing that a lot of times people do tap their 401ks for big purchases, and you just hate to do it in a down market. I hope some of your money is in the savings account portion of your 401k so that you can tap something that didn't go down. Let's talk next with Allison in Santa Monica. I understand you've got a, an older uh, a mom who's 82. She um, requires memory care. Uh, your question, please. Sure. So my mom's 82. I, I'm 60, so I don't worry about myself because I've got a little time, hopefully, to recover from this downturn. But she's 82. We are tapping her remaining assets to pay for her care, which is about $80,000 a year. Um, so we're really concerned that if uh, if the portion of her savings that's in stocks is taking a dive, um, how are we going to pay for her care? And what is it that we can do right now to protect that capital so she, so we can uh, take care of her properly? Allison, I appreciate it. Uh, Matthew Morofsky? Sure, Allison. Um, yeah, it's a scary time uh, exactly in your mom's situation. And the, I, I would I would be very, very careful about um, selling any equity stock positions right now where you're selling at lows and, and hopefully it's it's kind of that preparation. Uh, whereas, you know, just like Delia was saying, you hope to have that 12 to 24 months, uh, sitting in an FDIC, uh, you know, money market or savings account where it's making, uh, just a, a few points or, or less, uh, so that you can weather this out. Uh, because what, what's really, really harmful in a down market is, is that you have to remember you can't panic, uh, because you, you don't want it taking a hit, at 20 to 30 percent down, even though your know, mom's in her 80s, will affect uh, as we come out of this. It, it can have very, very severe co- uh, consequences as you come out of this. So hopefully there was some money sitting, whether it was short-term bonds or money market or where you can use that. Well, well, we see the market kind of, and you know, might get worse, it might get better short-term, we don't know. But um, it's, it's a tough position. That's why you really want to ha- have those cash reserves because uh, that's, that's a big bill each month, you know, 80K a year. So uh, I, I would be very, very careful of, of taking a big hit that's going to affect, you know, the next, hopefully your mom has amazing health and she lives for the next 20, 25 years. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to do anything short term that's going to affect those years. I want to thank you both very much for uh, talking with our listeners today about the stock market and for those whose retirement accounts um, are heavily invested in stocks and uh, through 401ks, uh, through mutual funds. Obviously, uh, that's a huge percentage of Americans these days. Delia Fernandez, fee-only certified financial planner based in Los Alamitos. Her firm is Fernandez Financial Advisory. And Matthew Morofsky, fee-only fiduciary financial planner based in Encino with Goodstein Wealth Management. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I just want to update you that we're making tremendous progress 
on our uh, challenge that we have going on right now, a $50,000 challenge. We've suspended our long um, fundraising breaks so that we can bring you extensive coverage of COVID-19. We have a $50,000 challenge through five this afternoon from our board member, Kathy Ward and George Ward. They're collaborating this. We have 130 members to go by five o'clock. So if you're in a financial position to support us right now, to even increase your gift, if you could do that or make an additional contribution right now, I would deeply appreciate it. We have a million dollars to raise by Friday so that we can keep our budget uh, afloat here. We can keep our staffing current at KPCC and AirTalk. 866-888-5722, 866-888-5722, or the AirTalk page, KP, I'm sorry, or kpcc.org uh, to make your contribution there. If you are a student who... Uh, is home right now, and that's pretty much every student, as I understand it. I'd like to hear how you are organizing your education. What is your school doing? What are you working on to further your education, even though you're in the house? Um, And it doesn't matter what grade level you're at. If you're an elementary school student, middle school student, high schooler, if you're a college student, I'd like to hear right now how you're managing your continuing education in the wake of the suspension of your classes. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-KPECC. If you're a parent who is working with your child's school to try and get um, the educational process underway at home. What are the things that you're doing to do that? 866-893-KPECC or our AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Joining me now from the University of Southern California, Professor of Clinical Education, Margot Pinceval. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Pinceval, for joining us. What are some important things for parents and students themselves to keep in mind um, in, in trying to not get off track educationally? Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. Um, I think that there's no doubt that parents at home don't need to feel the pressure of replicating what goes on in schools. But I think that there are lots of really valuable things that can happen through learning and working together in the home setting that that can really keep kids from the great fear that kids fall behind. Um, I think, you know, talking, listening, reading, um, writing, all those things, as long as they're happening, I think kids are moving ahead. They're incredible sponges. I, I walked out of my house today and I said, hmm, that worm is in front of my door. I wonder why. So if we think about science questions, if we think about Um, environmental questions. We are an age of technology, and while not every household has technology, there are amazing um, inquiries that that kids can involve themselves in, and they can have the freedom to do that. So I, I think there's just so many things that parents can facilitate for their children that can be exciting and fun. Professor, you know, one of the things with the homeschooling families that I've noticed is uh, a lot of what they do is out in the world. It's very interactive, hands-on. 
Um, I envy a lot of the things that homeschooled kids get exposed to just because of what can be a very enriched environment. But now, of course, because of, of people staying home, because of some of the limits of being out, at least being, you know, in close quarters with someone else, um, that can be limiting. Are there ways of replicating online, at least in some sense, that out in the world learning? Oh, I think definitely. Um, you know, th- there are lots of different ways that teachers teach. And the one that comes to our mind all the time is kids sitting at desks in classrooms with like other students talking to each other and doing schoolwork. But there's other learning formats. There's one called a, a webbed curriculum. And you start with a question and the kids just keep following that web and learning more and more. That is what homeschooling generally does. I mean, I know we have objectives from lessons that go with the state curriculum and that are eventually tested. But right now, I I don't think we have to worry about that as much. I, I think there might be some kids that are under more pressures or perceived pressures than other kids. You know, the testing's coming up in April, AP exams are coming up in May, and that may be on kids' minds. But there's, there's no uh, reason for them not to be able to explore and kind of go in more deeply into the kinds of things, things they're interested. I mean, I mean, education and that kind of inquiry is never a waste, and it just builds kids' minds. I, I have very fond memories of my childhood and, and just my insatiable <laughs> desire to learn stuff and to read stuff. And, and um, I, I actually felt like I, I learned more from my own reading than I actually did in a classroom just because my curiosity was able to, to drive me those afternoons sitting in the library going from stack to stack. And just, um, it, it, yeah, I've, it was certainly, for me, much more fulfilling than sitting in a classroom. But I'd like to hear from you, if you're a parent or a student, what are the ways that you're trying to reorient your education with classroom instruction being suspended? 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Dramatic change in education with schools suspending in person classes, education going online or via television, uh, or creative things that students and parents are coming up with to, uh, together. We're talking with USC professor of clinical education, Margot Pinsaval. Let's talk with Ivy, who I understand uh, you're a sixth grader uh, at St. Monica's Elementary in Santa Monica. Ivy, good to have you with us. So, w- what are you doing to keep up with your education? Um, we're doing online school. We have 10 minute, uh, 30 minute classes and 10 minute breaks after classes. All right. And, uh, so are you adapting to that or is it just, is it, is it tough to do it because it's so different? It's pretty tough because it's really different and, but it, I'm adapting and it's getting better. Okay. And are, do you still have contact with uh, your classmates, even though you're away? Do you use social media to connect with them as much as you used to? Yes, I um, can text them and FaceTime them. We 
on my laptop. Okay. And your your teachers are they are in the FaceTiming that you're doing with teachers, are are they instructing in the same way they would if they're standing in front of the class, or are they taking a different approach? Um, they're at school doing it like they would if we were there in class. Boy, that's got to be such an adjustment for you. Yeah, it is. All right. Ivy James, thank you very much. I appreciate a sixth grader at St. Monica's Elementary giving a sense of how different it is uh, in this day. Let's talk with Benjamin in Santa Monica as well. You're on Air Talk. Um, Benjamin, you're a middle school student, I understand. So how are you transitioning? Well, um, at Lincoln uh, Middle School, we've been using an online program called Google Classroom, and it's been a real big transition because we don't get any actual instruction. Like, there's some schools are FaceTiming their teachers, but we don't do that. So it's basically just like homework for us. Okay. And is it is have you found it difficult at all in the early going to to stay focused on it since you're you know not with your fellow students and face to face with teachers, or are you finding it's working okay? I mean, it, it works okay, but it's it is harder to stay focused since when you're at home, you have you can do so many other things. Um, but I've I've tried to stay focused, and it's it's not that hard. Well, you're going through the same thing that uh, you know employees are going through uh, who are working from home. It's very easy to get distracted by other stuff going on. And how are your your I don't know if your parents are home or if you're home by yourself during the day, but are are they relating much to the schoolwork you're doing? Um, well, my parents stay home some days. Um, my mom is a teacher too, or two, so she has to go through the same thing as I am, but yeah, pretty much. All right, Benjamin, I appreciate it. Fiona Ng, our senior producer, said these students are amazing. I said, of course, they're air talk listeners. This is what we this is what we see at our uh, at our public events as well. Extremely well spoken um, and in the know uh, students. Benjamin, I appreciate it, and good luck with Google Classroom and the transitioning that you're going through there. Eight six six eight nine three KPCC or the air talk page KPCC.org. Sammy in Reseda. I understand you're a high school freshman what school do you go to i go to Reseda charter high school all right and uh so what's it like for you being home it's kind of harder for me to focus because we just have packets and homework and stuff some of the teachers are going online and helping us but the other classes it's a bit harder to get in touch with the teachers and uh, for the teachers that you have been in touch with, does it seem like they're adapting okay, or do they seem a little stressed about this? What What's your read on them? I think everyone's a little bit flustered and a little bit trying to adapt to everything, but I feel like they're all adjusting pretty well. And um, for some of your classes, are there ones that are that don't transition very well to online instruction and has your school talked about how to deal with that? I don't know if you have labs or, you know, things like that that are more hands-on. Yeah, I have an engineering class, and that's a little bit harder to do at home because we have a CAD program, which not everyone can download. So we have to wait until after the break to do all of our CAD work. 
Sammy, are you seeing any of your friends face to face or just using social media for contact? Um, it's a lot of social media, but I am planning to get together with some of my friends sometime. All right, Sammy, I appreciate it. Thank you for being with us. 866-893-KPCC. Let me go back to USC professor of clinical education, Margot Pincival. Uh, your thoughts about these uh, first three calls from students and how they're trying to adapt to this? Yeah, I think they're amazing. Um, I, I think that the one connection that might make the whole experience a little bit more rewarding is if this is okay with their teachers, is they work together online. Um, you know, I think there is this fear of isolation. This, there, I mean, learning was never meant to be done all by yourself. We have online classes at USC in our teacher preparation program, but they're in real time. Everybody's talking to each other. They break out in small groups. And I think if the kids could get together and, like, talk about their homework together, I think it would be a better learning experience and a better social experience, and I think it wouldn't maybe be so hard to focus. That's a great idea, uh, and hopefully schools are, are able to figure out a way to accommodate that. Let's talk with Madison in Long Beach. Madison, uh, you're an elementary school student. Where do you go to school? Um, I go to school at Naples Bayside Academy. Very good. And uh, tell us a little bit about how your day has changed. Well, like, the, the teacher the teacher will email our parents, and, like, their homework pages for math is blah, blah, blah. And, like, it's kind of crazy because <laughs> teachers, like, they should be learning this, and if they don't, their parents need to sit down with them and teach it. And then, like, during recess, the teachers, like, they have to go play outside, draw chalk or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I certainly know about too. Uh, Madison, um, are are you concerned at all about staying up in your studies, or do you, you feel like the your school is getting a handle on this? I feel like, because right now our school is under construction, so I'm kind of, like, concerned that with coronavirus and everything that the construction workers might get sick and then the school will be canceled for even longer because they need to work even longer in construction. Well, let's hope that's, yeah, we'll hope that's not the case and that your school is back and operating normally. What grade are you in? I'm in fourth grade. Okay, very good. Madison, thank you very much. Appreciate your calling and sharing your experience. It's wonderful to hear from students listening to Wear Talk and calling us to share what it's like doing their studies from home as their classroom instruction has been suspended. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Coming up, we'll briefly talk about what it's like with preschoolers uh, when daycare or preschool classes have been canceled and how parents can help with their uh, particularly uh, young ones learning. Uh, uh, Mariana Dale, KPCC Early Childhood Education Reporter, will share some tips for parents coming up back in one minute. it's not how students hear air talk blah 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 <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's more engaging than that great to have your calls uh, we're asking students particularly to join us and talk about your experience adapting to 
online uh, education, being at home, and continuing your studies. But we want to briefly touch on preschoolers, KPCC Early Childhood Education reporter Mariana Dale. Mariana, what uh, tips do you have for parents of the littlest ones? So some of the advice that we've already heard about, you know, establishing a routine, that also works for really little kids, too. They want to know what to expect out of the day. So get up in the morning, get dressed, have your breakfast. Um, but one of the most exciting things I heard uh, when I was talking to experts is that really parents can make everyday activities that you have to do to maintain your household a learning experience. And so one of those examples is is something like laundry. You know, we all have dirty socks, got to get those clean. And so by doing things like explaining to kids how we sort the laundry, socks from shirts or the colors, um, that's starting to teach kids things like classification and counting, which are really the the building blocks of math. I actually just talked to a parent yesterday who um, her son was really excited to help out with the laundry. And so don't feel like the tasks that you do every day, like cooking and cleaning, can't be learning experiences for your little kids because they, they really just want to be a part of whatever you're doing. Uh, Marianne, you've been uh, doing some extensive coverage of this uh, for preschoolers. We have a link to it on our AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Um, and just so briefly, uh, what are some of the things that you're writing about? Yeah, so things like introducing the concepts of science, technology, engineering, and math to little kids. Um, something uh, you can do to talk about technology is just look at the everyday objects in your house and start conversations with children about, you know, how do you think that works? Or how do we use this in our household? Um, even making something like Play-Doh, we have a recipe for that, can teach kids about science, measuring, mixing, different types of chemical reactions that happen. Um, similar to what was said earlier, parents shouldn't be stressed out about trying to recreate what's happening in the classroom. It's it's just not going to happen. Um, this is a temporary situation, and so you need to find whatever works for you and your household. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. That's KPCC reporter Mariana Dale. She covers early childhood education. Let's talk with Mateo in Beverly Wood in Los Angeles, who's a student at Geffen Academy. Mateo, thanks uh, very much. What What is your school using to continue your studies? Um, hi, Larry. What we're using, uh, we're using Google Classroom in our portal, and we're also using a little bit of Zoom, which is uh, just in like Skype, I guess. And pretty much what we're doing is it's a lot of homework, but we have a very adaptable schedule. We have two office hours per week where we're expected to meet with each one of our teachers once. And we're also expected to do all our homework and do it on our own time. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. How are you feeling about your time management? Because, you know, obviously a lot of this falls to you to make sure that you stay on task and and devote enough time to it. Has that been a challenge at all, or do you feel like you're you're pretty good at doing that? That comes naturally. Um, it definitely has been a challenge, especially because a lot of my other friends they did it the night before because you're not really doing your homework together since we're not together. It's not like after school 
we're going to stay at school for an hour and do our homework together. So uh, my it's hard to resist the temptation of video games and because obviously this is all online. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the it's the same platform, right? So, yeah, that would be that would be the temptation. Yeah, Mateo, what grade are you in? I'm in sixth. Sixth grade. Okay, very good. And Geffen is that's a middle school and high school combined. Is that right? Okay, at UCLA, Mateo. Hey, we wish you all the best. Thank you for calling in. This is wonderful because I, I feel like I'm sort of joining each of you, and hopefully that's true for all of our listeners. We're kind of there with you and getting a sense of what this challenge, but also the opportunity is like. USC professor Margot Pinsaval, kind of inspiring to hear uh, these students talk about what they're what they're dealing with and how they're approaching it. Yeah, you know, um, I, I use Zoom almost every day, and I just hope that people realize that you can have up to 49 people on the screen at the same time. Now, they get very small, but at the same time, I, I can't emphasize enough that social interaction and learning. I, I think there's so much emotion in learning and that kids can learn from each other and talk to each other and problem solve and collaborate. I, I think that is a, this is a time that really forces that to happen, and that's really great. I, I have to laugh when Mariana said about the Play-Doh. I had that ready to talk about <laughs> Yeah, you know, so many things parents can do at home. But when we're talking about middle school and and high school kids, we know that the essence of their social life is at school. And I think the more we can find ways to bring them together to learn together, I think this is this forced experience is going to be a lot more successful. Let me share some more comments. Uh, Sarah in Koreatown is a law student. She says, we're not sure if the bar is going to get pushed from July 27th. We may be studying for far longer. We know our graduations have been canceled, but no one's saying what's happening with the bar. Sarah, that's got to be very stressful when you put these years into law school and then you don't know when you're actually going to get your, your opportunity to take the exam. Kay in Santa Clarita is a CalArts student, says, we haven't gotten our new syllabi yet for the upcoming term. I'm in student government. We're planning to do a virtual arts fair for all the students to take part in while we're all apart. Kay, that's a great idea. Uh, CalArts, of course, uh, student projects there are uh, uh, incredible uh, what they're able to accomplish. Mallory in Long Beach says, I'm a Cal State Long Beach student. I'm studying to be an ESL teacher and doing a practicum right now. I'm supposed to be doing 30 hours of observation. The requirements for the course are changing, so we can't fill that requirement uh, at this point. Mallory, thanks. And I, I know for those for internship, externship, um, practicums that require that in-person part of it, tremendously challenging to do that. And Xander in Van Nuys is a sixth grader in the Valley, says it's hard because the teachers aren't giving us a lot of work. We have to go on a ton of different websites to get information and try and figure out what to do. And it's hard to find those instructions. Xander, we wish you the best and thank you for calling and sharing uh, that challenge that you're having in your home-based education. My thanks to USC Professor of Clinical Education Margot Pinsaval and KPCC Early Childhood Education Reporter Mariana Dale. Stay tuned. Fresh Air with Terry Gross is coming up. Her guest is actor Hank Azaria. 
And uh, BBC NewsHour continues with COVID-19 coverage, 1 o'clock this afternoon. AOB along with Take Two at 2 o'clock. And, of course, all things considered today as well, right here on KPCC. I'm back with you tomorrow morning at 10. Stay healthy, stay well, stay calm.